You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. I appreciate all the, the feedback and the stuff that Louis contributes as we get started because um, it gives me a reminder to pause and to realize that we're all on this journey together, really. Like, I, as much as I'm here and I'm continuing in Acts, um, it's not about me, it's not really about specifically this sermon or even this topic, but it encourages me that we're all here learning and growing and trying to take the next step of obedience and what God's leading us to. And, and that's something we get to do as a church and as a community. And I really appreciate uh, Louis's words and appreciate his feedback. And um, so today as we, as we dive in, um, I wanted to just briefly, um, just in case somehow, some way, you're like, this is my first or second time at Hillside and I have no idea where the pastors are. Louis and Joni are currently in Germany, and so they'll be there for about another two weeks, and this week they asked if I could go ahead and continue our series in Acts in Acts chapter 9. And so I'll be doing that, but before we read the scriptures, I just want to pray us in, and we'll be able to also pray for Louis and Joni real quick. So, um, God, I just thank you so much for today. Lord, I, um, I pray that you continue to bless Louis and Joni on their adventures in Germany, and that you see that you use them as your hands and feet. We pray for divine appointments, new lifelong friendships. Lord, just continue to bring peace with them everywhere that they go. Lord, I also just pray for the sermon today. Let it be your words and not my own. Help us to walk away with something new as um, this particular story is very familiar and very popular. Lord, just um, reunite us afresh by your Holy Spirit. In your precious name. Amen. All right. So let me double check slides real quick. Perfect. Okay. So if you haven't been here, like I said, let me quickly give you the Acts synopsis, just so that way everyone's on the same page for where we're at. So for the context, we're in Acts chapter 9. So Acts chapter 1, we had Jesus was going away, and he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And once they received the Holy Spirit, they would become witnesses or martyrs in all of their regions. They would be going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we get to see in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens. Um, Pentecost not being significant, it just means 50 days. But the Holy Spirit showed up in Pentecost and was able to fill not only the disciples, but 3,000 people that day were saved. And so we get to see what does it look like to be Christians? What does it look like to follow the way as it gets later identified um, in Jerusalem. And then after Acts 1 and 2, we get to see kind of that unfolding in Acts 3 and 4. We get to see miraculous things happen, and we get to see our first kind of confrontations within the community. Um, you have people that are church leaders and church folks that, and the special council that really isn't happy that now that they've killed Jesus, that they're still talking about Jesus. It's like, that guy's gone. Like, why are you still talking about him? And it's like, well, he's resurrected from the dead. And it's like, we don't believe in that here. So the Sadducees walk away and get all upset. And then, you know, the Pharisees, they're like, why are you still talking about Jesus? And he's like, he's the fulfillment of the law and scripture. And we need to be believing in him and his mission. And it's like, that doesn't sound holy enough. Don't you got stuff that you can memorize? Don't you got stuff that we can do? And so they're all upset too. And then they heal a blind guy and, you know, sorry, a lame guy. I think Louis had, had affectionately called him Lame Larry. And Larry's jumping up and down and in church and being like, Jesus, it's like the power of Jesus is real. And they're like, now we really don't like these guys. So they 
unfortunately, persecution starts to come about between Acts 4 and 5. And as we're going through this period of persecution, they have problems not only from the outside, they start having their own internal persecution. They have people within their own group and community that don't quite have their sights aligned with God and his mission. They end up trying to sell property. The one that I'm talking about is um, Ananias and Sapphira. They end up selling property similar to how one of the other people in their community, Barnabas, did, but they ended up lying about how much they sold the property for, and kind of like we've been talking about with you know, no plan B today, they were like, oh, we're going to tell them how much we sold it for, but we're really going to hold on to this amount of money, so that way, you know, just in case it doesn't work out in this whole commune thing that we're establishing here, we still have our safety and our security net. And, you know, they get confronted with, that's not what the spirit of what God wants us to do. And so, unfortunately, Ananias and Sapphira die from their hoarding and from their disbelief and lying to the Holy Spirit. And so this turmoil is happening and there's a lot going on. And you run into, finally, the stoning of Stephen. And so as they are working through feeding their widows and working through how do Gentiles and Jews work together, how do we all become a Christian family, the Pharisees and the people have had enough. <laughs> and they're like, all right, Stephen, like, you're going to be the one that ends up being the first martyr. And from that, the church is persecuted. The church is now spreading out to Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And so last week in chapter 8, we got to see the beginnings of that. We got to see the gospel message, good news, finally transition from Jerusalem to Samaritans. And like Louis mentioned, Samaritans are kind of like half-breeds. They're not real Jews. They have a huge, long history <laughs> that you can read through in the Old Testament about how they effectively abandoned Judaism and, and God way early on and adopted all of the people's lands and gods around them. And so they're kind of as close as to the hated people group as they can be. <laughs> and um, Philip goes there and the Holy Spirit comes and their lives are transformed. So the Holy Spirit and God's mission and movement isn't separated by ethnicity. It isn't separated by your background or your history. The good news can come to you too. In the same way, Philip then gets told go, and he walks out into the desert for way too many miles and sees a random chariot, and Jesus tells him, or the Holy Spirit tells him to go, and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. And that eunuch it's like, is one of, as a God-fearer from all the way across of Egypt, and he wants to know more about who God is and who Jesus is. And there's a divine appointment that occurs, and the Holy Spirit is, and he gets baptized, and he gets the Holy Spirit, and he goes back home and continues the mission of God. We get to see that pattern that God, the gospel good news is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a half-breed and you kind of get it, and maybe you're just a little off, or you're a Gentile, and you're from a foreign nation, and you believe. Nothing can stop the gospel. But what about when it gets hard? What about when you have an active enemy that says, you're wrong and we're going to throw you in jail because of what you believe? Can the gospel be shared then? And if it can, what can it do? And so that's what we're going to be covering today in Acts 9. In this story, we're going to meet what you would probably call public enemy number one of the Christian church. And you get to see his encounter with Jesus. 
So we'll go ahead and we'll put the scripture up there. I'm going to read it. So this is Acts 9, 1 through 6. But Saul, so I'm going to have to back up. I already got too far. (laughs) So why is there a but? Anytime you're in your scripture, you see a but or therefore, you got to look back. So we just heard the story of of, uh, Philip baptizing the eunuch and him being teleported away. And the eunuch over ecstatic and overjoyed about the good news of Jesus and him taking that back home with him to his country. And it literally starts with then, but Saul. So instead of being overjoyed, we're focused now on Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So again, Luke is pretty funny. Because Saul only gets briefly mentioned before this instance in in Acts chapter 8, verse 2. And the context note is, oh, he approved of the execution and he he held everyone's cloaks while they went and stoned Stephen. And then from that, he's ravaging the church and dragging men and women to prison. He really thought that this Jesus cult was so heretical that it's corrupting all of Judaism. He's so invested in this mission to stop the way that he would get direct approval from the highest religious authorities and travel 130 miles or six days, you know, kind of of a journey to Damascus just to stop this explosive group of people. You can kind of get why, you know, he's maybe seen as public enemy number one. That's quite investment. Like 160 miles, you're going to go all the way down to Las Vegas in an attempt to stop the movement from going. It is crazy. But since that's all we get, I'll give you some more context on who he is. Because the passage doesn't actually tell you anything besides that he's the persecutor. Um, He's a devout Jew, a Roman citizen, and a Pharisee who trained under Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Okay, I'm going to ignore that. I can't say that word. All right. But he is one of the most top and respected council members. He even had a quick intro when Stephen and them were having their discussion on like, what should we do about these, this group of people? He's like, hey, don't persecute them because if it's from God, you will know. And if it's not from God, you will also know because it will also fall away, just like all of these other examples. And they're like, those are wise words. And then they went and stoned him anyway. So um, The other thing is Saul gives his own description. In Philippians 3, 5 through 6, Saul says of himself that he was was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the churches, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So this man is zealously tackling what he believes is God's mission. He's following in the footsteps of what his teachers and his people have shown him, that he's committed to what 
the faith of Judaism looks like. And he is so invested that when he starts seeing these uprising, these upliftings, he has to act. He can't sit on the sidelines anymore and watch as things fall apart. Watch as people get their, what he believes, this twisted view of Judaism. So as he's on the road then, let's again look at the scripture. How does this encounter happen? Because you've got somebody whose plan is to go and arrest and persecute people and bring them all the way back to Jerusalem and instead gets met by Jesus in a shining light. So we're going to go and read this again. So Acts 9, um, 5 through 9. So it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Some of the details that stand out to me from this story are kind of funny. The first one I never really noticed, I was telling Chris this morning, is that there's other people there. And they're not just there, they actually heard. It's like, hey, like, you guys heard that voice too? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, they said you were persecuting him. Whatever the voice was, it's like, it's like, do you know who you're persecuting? He's like, well, it said it was Jesus. And like, isn't that why we're going to Damascus is to arrest all those Jesus people? And it's like, well, you don't get to hear about those people anymore. You only get to hear about Saul. So we'll stick with Saul. His name being repeated twice stood out to me because it feels like throughout scripture, you have Jesus speaking to people where they'll be like, in John, he specifically says, like, truly, truly, when he wants to emphasize a point. Or I think about in the Old Testament, um, the, uh, some of the you know, fathers of the faith are called and have a discussion with God, and they specifically say their name twice. Like Abraham gets an Abraham, Abraham, when he's about to um, sacrifice Isaac for God. Um, he gets a redirection. And then you get to see the same thing with Jacob. Jacob is... Um, more or less trying to figure out if he's supposed to go to Egypt because Joseph and his family, you know, Joseph's now the Pharaoh and he's encouraging the whole family to come. And so Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, is like, I don't know what to do. And, and when he doesn't know what to do, God speaks to him in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, go ahead and take your family there. This is the plan. And then we see the same thing with Moses. When Moses first approaches the burning bush, it's Moses, Moses. And then lastly, I thought of Samuel. Samuel is one of the prophets way later on where um, he's sitting in the temple and he thinks that uh, Eli is calling him. Say so it's like as uh, the person that's, uh, that's working the temple, it's an older gentleman. So he hears his name and he runs out. Oh, did you call me? He's like, no, I didn't call you. I think he ends up doing it like three times. And so finally he's like, if you hear the name again, if you hear the voice again, Say, here I am, Lord, your servant's listening, because it's probably God talking to you. And so, of course, it happens, and he says, here I am. What's interesting to me is I looked at all four of those instances, and every one of those times where people, where God had called out their voice, had God had called out their name, sorry, they respond with, here I am, Lord. They know 
who's talking to them. They have an intimate relationship with the person that they're engaging with. And I don't see that here with Saul. Instead of here I am, acknowledging who you are and who I am, instead it comes off with who are you, Lord? And so I was like, it's capitalized in the text. And I was like, is this like, you know, L-O-R-D, Lord, where it's all caps in your Bible and it's like, and it's Yahweh? And it's not. It's actually like a reverence title. It's more of who are you person that's way above. Like I'm having an encounter with a supernatural being. And so like I'm being knocked to the floor being like, okay, who are you, Lord? Because clearly you're way bigger, way brighter than I could have ever imagined but I don't know who you are. It's really crazy to have your plans interrupted. It's even more crazy to have a divine light hone in on you and knock you on your butt to be like, you're doing the wrong thing. (laughs) And so I read through this and I see Saul, Saul, and I'm like, is he condemning him? Is he being rude? Like, is he actually like really upset about what's happening here? And instead I see a redirection. I see the same thing as when you're working with children. They may not hear you the first time when you call their name, but they will hear you the second time when you call their name. And sometimes the redirections can be really cute. My foster daughter, I'm gonna skip saying the name for the moment because we're on TV. trying to put on her shoes this last week. She put them on and clearly the feet are backwards. And I was like, I was like, how did you put your foot in there? It's on backwards. And what does she do? She looks down at her feet and then she does this. She turns her feet back. (laughs) It looks great. And now they're facing the right way. And I'm like, creative, but not right. (laughs) And so she needed a redirection of like, this is where I want you to go. And so I look at, this encounter, and as zealous and bullheaded as it appears to be, he is on track and focused to go to Damascus to do what he thinks is God's will. I don't know if just Saul, Saul would have been enough to make him stop. And unfortunately, sometimes we need to hit the really hard things to be able to get us to stop and slow down and reevaluate our plans. During this encounter, Saul is confronted with the reality of his actions. He wasn't just persecuting man and a movement, he was persecuting the living God. Saul thought he was serving God in viciously attacking Christians, but he discovered that he was fighting God. So you can kind of see why his next question, once he's kind of understood who he's talking to, is, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's not written in texts up there, Lord, what do you want me to do? But when God gives you a direction, it's because he's already reading your heart. (laughs) He knows what you're looking for. And he's like, okay, so I'm not doing the right thing. What is the right thing? What do you want me to do? And it made me laugh because I was like, wouldn't that be great to get the whole plan right in front? All right, God, what am I supposed to do? I've got 89, 120 years of life on this planet. Tell me what to do. And all he tells him is, well, go to the city, and then I will tell you what to do. And it's like, ah, I need more details. I can't just do this on my own. I need a plan B. (laughs) So it's like, in my experience with God, 
everything happens a step at a time. I think back to my first time doing financial peace and we met with Dave Ramsey and it's like, how do you tackle this debt? How do you tackle all these problems in your life? And it's like, well, the same way you eat an elephant. It's a bite at a time. And I look at what God's directing and what God's doing and God is going to guide me a step at a time. And I have to be open and available to hear it and to respond. The last two tidbits of things from here that I recognize with Saul. Um, Saul's been left blind and helpless. It's a very different um, perspective from where he started. Being very confident and active and ready to kick butt and take names. He's now being held like a little child by the hand into town. It's definitely a humbling and probably humiliating experience. But it just emphasized for me this metaphor and these parallels that we see throughout Scripture about, you know, being blind and having sight, or light and darkness. Um, it made me first think of the psalm. It talks about, it's also a song, but the psalm is, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I know where I'm going because Jesus is illuminating where we're supposed to be going. And the same way I think of amazing grace. There's a verse that says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. There are people who physically saw Jesus and were spiritually blind to the circumstances around them. Saul now is physically blind and his companions are leading him but he can see. He now has clarity on his mission in life. He now has the right reorientation for what he's supposed to do. When we talk about a transformation story, a lot of the time we think of Paul as someone that was this crazy, unhinged character that's murdering and doing these things, and then all of a sudden, oh look, he's the most wonderful person. He wrote a quarter of the New Testament. Like He clearly got his life transformed by Jesus. He did, but it didn't change his character. It didn't change his personality. He didn't become, you know, Saul 2.0. He, he got turned. The same zealousness that he's had in persecuting Christians encouraged him to write to Christians and to help them understand how much the Lord loves you. If I can be the person that murders and does all of these things and be going the wrong way, Please hear me then when I say his love is good enough for you. That's the same zealous man, but just turned to a new bend in his life. I totally can also understand how <laughs> having a giant bombshell go off in your life, why you wouldn't want to eat or drink for three days. You know, it's kind of like, all right, I don't know what's right or wrong anymore, Lord, so I'm just going to sit and wait. <laughs> so you tell me what to do and... All this time, maybe reevaluating goals and ambitions. So it's, yeah. Okay, we get to read our, about our next character. So let's go ahead and we're going to jump to Acts 9, 10 through 19. So now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus, named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. 
coming in and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil has he done to your saints at Jerusalem? And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he immediately, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. All right, so just like Saul, I gave a background and introduction. Here's the introduction and background of Ananias. Are you ready for it? He's a disciple at Damascus. That's it. Um, he was a believer in Jesus, obviously. He had a relationship with God, right? We see again, you know, God calls to him, talks to him in a vision, and you see the here I am. You see the response of engaging with God. But in reality, this is some ordinary dude. It doesn't even say he lived in Damascus. It just says there was a disciple in Damascus. Some random guy gets called to go to the persecutor, to go to the number one public enemy and say, by the way, you need to heal him today. And I've already given you, he's gotten a vision that it's you, Ananias, is coming to his house. God does a miracle in this man, and then he literally never gets talked about again. In the same way, God uses us in the unknown, ordinary times of our lives to do miracles in people's lives. We're going to come back to that, but just the idea that if we look at who this person is, it's not Philip, it's not Peter, it's not the, you know, any of the apostles coming and changing this man's life. It's Jesus who changed this man's life. He had an encounter with God, and his entire worldview has been changed. But even when God encounters a person, we often need community to be brought back into the fold, to be brought back into understanding, and to see what lies in front of us. So in reviewing his response, um, Ananias obviously has a relationship. When he says, here I am, Lord, it's actually the Messiah, Lord, God note in Greek. It's not the like, oh, big, powerful spirit servant that I don't know. It's actually an emphasis to Jesus and the Messiah. I can understand his hesitation, being called to do something that doesn't make sense, being called to do something that the world is telling you is wrong. When I first graduated from UNR with my degree in chemical engineering, I was offered two or three jobs um, most of them wanted me to go drill oil offshore. They asked me if I would go to an oil rig near India, so not at India, but just close to India. 
And, you know, back in 2010, when I graduated, they're like, starting salary is 125000 a year. And I was like, whew, I have no idea what I would do with that much money. I have never worked in that capacity. And they're like, no worries. You, uh, you work three months on, one month off. And, um, yeah, and you'll probably won't come back to the United States for a while just because during your one month off, it probably will be too hard to go to inland then drive, fly all the way to the United States and then come back. You'll just have no time. So most of the time, people just have homes there off the, off the coast. And I was like, I just got married. I don't think this is going to work. So, and then I looked at, you know, four or five other jobs locally here that I applied for. And um, the only job that actually said yes to me was doing ministry in inter, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the UNR campus. And... Um, I got a lot of pushback. <laughs> I uh, was told, why did you go and get your degree if you were just going to do ministry? Like, and then I got feedback of, well, can't you do ministry and serve at your church and go to work? Like, why, do, why do you have to not use your education? Why do you have to do these things? And, and it was tough because it felt like good advice. It's like, yeah, I shouldn't you know, let my degree go to waste. I just paid for this. I spent four years doing this. And I'm going to be asking people if they want to come to a Bible study. Not really engineering oriented at all. And it's not the same call that, that, Saul, that, that Ananias gets to go and, you know, speak to the persecutor, speak to the one that's been destroying and creating havoc for your church. But there are times where God's going to call you to act. And the question is, is, are you going to be available? Here I am, Lord. Are we going to allow our schedules to be interrupted to where we can actually have space to see the person in front of us that needs help and support? Because just like this story, Ananias comes in, he does his mission, he serves in what he's supposed to do, and he exits stage left. And there are people that we engage with every day at our workplaces, in our spheres of influence, that maybe that's all we do is we show up and we exit stage right. But there's a moment for a Jesus encounter there. So when Ananias questions God, he gets a, he gets a pretty funny response. He's like, are you sure this is the right Saul, right? This is Saul, Saul we're talking about. And God's like, yes, he's going to be my chosen instrument. Another word for instrument there is, is vessel, my chosen vessel. And it made me laugh because I think about vessel and then the word that they said there as they read through the passage, like he's going to carry my word. And so I almost got this vision of, or an image of a, of a bowl where Saul's literally the vessel that carries out and pours out as he goes what God has taught him. He is my chosen vessel and he will suffer greatly for the word it's it's got to be somewhat encouraging for Ananias that he came in with fears he said you know um, God flips his fears sorry it becomes Saul's objective the one who did much evil to those who call on the name of the Lord will now suffer for the sake of the Lord. 
Ananias is being enlisted in a mission, and he's going to be a messenger of God. And he goes and he heals him. And he brings him in, he baptizes him, and he joins the fold. Someone that has persecuted and created chaos for the church has now become a brother in Christ. So once again, it's not your ethnicity, it's not the old things that you have done, it's not where you grew up or were born. Heck, you can murder and kill people and still be brought back to the truth and who Jesus is. So when I kind of back up and like look at this story in its whole, Paul's conversion story is about a specific call, right? This is, a, this is specifically God's chosen vessel to be put on a divine mission. He's going to go all across Asia and preach the word, and he's going to write several letters that eventually become part of what we have in our New Testament. It's the same zealous guy that was out murdering and actively attacking the church. All he does is he gets a redirection, he gets a change of heart, and he gets a correct alignment with the real living God. He now has that relationship with God. He's not just chasing what his fathers and his people have been teaching him previously. Um, This whole story stems from an encounter with God. We get to see Saul's engagement and transformation. We also get to see an encounter with God from an obedient disciple who is willing to face fears, doubts, persecution, and clearly go out of his comfort zone and say yes to God one step at a time. So as I get kind of ready to close today for this message, I wanted to highlight that Saul is not the only chosen instrument. Each one of you is a masterpiece that God has uniquely created and has gifted in talents, personality, quirks, and love. If you look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God does have a specific plan for you too. No matter where you've been or what you've done, the good news of Jesus Christ, his dying on the cross for your sins, his resurrection from the dead, it brings forgiveness. It brings wholeness. And it gives us purpose. So my challenge for you, for you this week and something that I've been kind of struggling with is... Um, is reviewing my calendar and looking for if I have space. Because when I look at both Saul and Ananias, both of them get interrupted. Saul gets quite disrupted, but both of them get interrupted from their plans. If our schedule is so jam-packed, we will never have time for divine appointments. We'll never be able to stop and look and see, Lord, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing in my neighbor's life? I've been um, 
I've been reading a book, uh, I just finished it, called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I wanted to read a quote from it about specifically um, stopping and helping. So the quote on screen here says, Nobody is too good for the lowest service. Those who worry about the loss of time entailed by such small external acts of helpfulness are usually taking their own work too seriously. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God, who will thwart our plans and frustrate our ways time and again, even daily, by sending people across our path with their demands and requests. We can then pass them by, preoccupied with our more important daily tasks, just as the priest passed by the man who had fallen among robbers. When we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in our lives to show us that God's way and not our way is what counts. As many of you know, we've brought in a foster child into our home, and it has been quite disruptive. <laughs> it has been quite an interruption. Not that a normal child in anyone's lives isn't a disruption. But it's something where I'm looking at these circumstances, I'm looking at the engagement, I'm seeing the transformation that's only been three weeks in this little girl's life, and I see that God's working here. And it's hard, because it's not fixed. We don't have the plan. We don't know what will happen between reunification or not. But it gives me courage that God adopted me when I screwed up, when I was at my worst, he chose me and he loves me and I can choose to interrupt my schedule to love and care for this person and to try my best, whether it be through reunification or maybe a long-term adoption for some lucky family. We need to be able to have our schedules interrupted and to hear God's call. And so in the same way, I kind of put some little notes about how can we leave space for God or what does that look like? And so sometimes leaving space literally is praying for those God encounters in your sphere of influence. Maybe there's someone that you already have thought about <laughs> that you're like, wow, if I had time to talk to this person, maybe things could be different. Or maybe this person needs the joy of the Lord in their life, and I would love to talk to them. It can also be just slowing down and observing what's happening. Maybe we're so jam-packed that it's making us cranky and angry and people at work don't even know I'm a Christian because all I am is screaming and yelling about how the orders aren't done on time or that the colors on the wall don't match exactly what the blueprint said. You know, it's, yeah, hopefully that's not you. Um, being able to also read God's word and reflect on what the Holy Spirit is talking to you. The importance of a daily quiet time or some sort of spiritual rhythm to where we can check in and ask God what's happening right? Both Ananias and Saul have encounters with God, and either we hit the encounter in the middle of a huge mess, and it transforms our entire world, and he doesn't do anything for three days, or I can be open and hear and say, yes, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Ananias helped. Ana Ananias happened to be at the right place at the right time, and was obedient to the call to heal a man who was blind but now could see. I pray that we were able to also be available to be an instrument, a chosen instrument for God's mission in our lives. And so 
That's what I have today, so I'm going to pray for us as we close. God, I thank you so much for today and this opportunity to dig into your word. I thank you for the examples of Saul and Ananias. Lord, help us to stop and listen for your Holy Spirit, to evaluate our schedules, our to-do lists, and our priorities, and see where you are calling us to be your hands and feet. God, help us at our homes, our schools, our workplaces, to be looking for those divine appointments and opportunities, and to be that Jesus encounter for our friends and family. Lord, I, we just continue to pray for divine appointments for Louis and Joni as they travel in Germany, and for safe passage as you guide them and lead them. Lord, all of this is only because of your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for you sending him on the cross, restoring us and making us new. In your holy and precious name, amen. All right, well, thank you guys. Prayers available in the back by, well, not really the trellis. We'll call it the uh, studio and by the sound booth. And so if you'd like prayer, go ahead and do that. If not, have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for listening to me ramble on. God bless. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillside4.org. That's W-E-B at hillside, the number four, dot org.